Blog Talk Radio. From the far reaches of the known universe, we are proud to present Brother Harold Muhammad, soldier, scientist, scholar. Blog Talk Radio's finest. Not so mad science on Black Hole Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to tonight's edition of Not So Mad Science here on the Black Hole Radio Network. Once again and as always, coming to you live from the city of Detroit, Motown. Just because Barry Gordy took Motown to L.A. does not mean Detroit has lost its soul. The flavor of tonight's program is titled The Anthropomorphic Body of God. Chose this subject to highlight some of the work, and I would say the genius work, of my brother and friend, Dr. Minister, or I should say Minister Dr. Wesley Muhammad of the Nation of Islam. In his work, while at Michigan State University, Wesley Williams penned a paper titled Body Unlike Bodies, plural, Transcendent Anthropomorphism in Ancient Semitic Traditions and Early Islam. Why is that important now? Why would I pick a subject matter so scholarly? So educationally disruptive to a current way of thinking. It is my belief that it is high time to come from behind the blinders, take off the veil, and see God as he is, as a man, a man who is in power with the power to do as he wills to bring about change in the world. But we must lay a base. We must show evidence of and proof of this man body of God. In many traditions, normative Islamic notions of God's transcendence preclude divine corporeality and anthropomorphism. And yes, I'm going to give some definitions to these $200 words that that will be part of our discussion this evening. But say for the moment, just, just ride along. This tradition of incorporeal transcendence is in radical discontinuity with the Semitic, Biblical, 
in ancient Near Eastern traditions of transcendent anthropomorphism. So tonight, I'm going to lean heavily on the scholarship of my brother and friend, Dr. Wesley Muhammad, while a student at Michigan State University, Wesley Williams. I'm going to lean extremely heavily on his scholarship as we begin to lay the base for the manliness of God. To that end, I think the music of George Benson is appropriate. This masquerade. Carry on this way, all 
Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. This is Not So Mad Science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Network. We're having a minor technical issue, and I mean minor. So, there's another piece of music that I think is appropriate from that beautiful brother, Stevie Wonder, titled Tree.
Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. This is your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black. Motown, just because Barry Gordy took Motown to L.A., does not mean Detroit has lost its soul. And it appears, and I say appears, that the devil's hand is back at it again because we lost our connection. So we are going to try it again. No, we are not going to end this episode. We are going to open our Skype right back up because somebody is fooling around with our connection. So it's not over. It's not done. And we are going to continue to have our fun. So let's make it happen. Let's do it one more time. Okay, let's see what we can see. Let's do what we can do. And prayerfully, Allah will answer our prayer. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Please enter your host pin when finished. Press the pound key. To start your show now, press 1. Since it appears you're calling back into a live show, we are reconnecting you now. Kids, we are back on the air, live, kicking, and screaming. So, let's get back to it. The anthropomorphic body of God, as we lean heavily onto the scholarly work of our brother, Dr. Wesley Muhammad, at his time at Michigan State University, where he was known as Wesley Wade. In taking up and elaborating upon John Wayne Burroughs' insistence, emerging Islam be seen as a continuation of Near Eastern Semitic monotheistic tradition. Gerald R. Hawking makes an important observation that Islam is indeed related to Judaism and Christianity as part of the Middle Eastern Abrahamic or Semitic tradition of monotheism seems so obvious and it's so often said that it might be wondered why it was thought necessary to repeat it. The reason is that although it is often said acceptance of Islam as a representative of the monotheistic religious tradition is not always accompanied by willingness to think through the implications of the statement. Although both Muslim traditions and Western scholarship articulate a recognition of Islam's place within the Semitic monotheistic tradition, there's not only often an unwillingness to embrace the implications of this recognition, 
There's also, in practice, the tendency to distance Islam from that tradition. This is particularly the case regarding the Islamic gotshaw. And I'll spell that G-O-T-T-E-S-L-E-H-R-E. Gotshaw. Islam is often viewed the religious par excellence of divine transcendence. God is Khalif al-Islam, the absolute divergence from the world. And this characteristically Islamic doctrine of Mukhalafa, divine otherness, precludes divine corporeality and anthropomorphism. But such a model of divine transcendence is Hellenistic, not Semitic. The very notion of immateriality, as well argued by Robert Renhard, seems to have been the brainchild of Plato. The Semitic and ancient Near Eastern model is or I should say in general, embrace both otherness and corporeality, anthropomorphism. The gods were transcendently anthropomorphic. To use Ronald Hendel's term, that is to say, while the gods possess an anthropoid or human-like form, this form was also in a fundamental way unlike that of humans in that it was transcendent either in size, beauty, the substance of which it was composed, or all three. Ancient Israel stood in linguistic and religious continuity with her neighbors in the Levant, spelled L-E-V-A-N-T. Morton Smith suggested in a classic article that Israel participated in the common theology in the Near East. However ill-defined this concept, of an ancient Near Eastern common theology, it is clear that the gods of Israel and the gods of the ancient Near East actually deferred less than had been supposed. Like the gods of the ancient Near East, the gods of Israel and biblical tradition were transcendently and the ancient Near Eastern Semitic transcendent anthropomorphism stands in stark contrast to the normative Islamic notions of divine transcendence. But the latter 
Fazlur Rahman has pointed out, does not emerge from the Quran, but from later theological development in Islam. This later theological development included the appropriation of Hellenistic concepts and terms in order to interpret the Quran and the Sunnah, particularly the statements about God. Early Islam was, among other things, clearly a formulation of Near East mythological tradition. It is specifically the Oriental monotheism. To use John Wainsborough's characterization of the ancient Near Eastern biblical tradition to which Islam and the Quran are heirs, a point that later concedes parity between the ancient Near Eastern, Semitic, and Islamic notions of divine transcendence becomes more acute when one considers the insistence by Islamic traditions and Western scholarship that the deity is the same in the three monotheistic traditions. The monotheist not only worships one God, he is the same God for all, whether called Yahweh, Elohim, or that I should say, or Elohim, God the Father, or Allah. It is the self-same being who created the world out of nothing. What then is the relation between the transcendently anthropomorphic Yahweh, Elohim, and this incorporeal Allah? It will be argued here that in an earlier period, Islam possessed a, tradi a tradition of transcendent anthropomorphism, similar in many ways to the articulated in the ancient Near Eastern tradition and biblical sources. Through the meditations of Hellenistically influenced schools, such as the Mutadila, notions of divine transcendence would eventually characterize all of Islam. He and she keep us alike. But while triumphant in Shiism was achieved by the third to ninth century, Sunnism held out for considerably longer. Thurman Jackson has pointed out that in early Muslim debates over the divine attributes, rationalist groups such as the Mutazila privileged Aristotelian Neoplatonic logic and motifs, while traditionalists rejected them at least ostensibly. It thus should come as no surprise is in traditionalist Sunnism that this ancient Semitic transcendent anthropomorphism survived well into the 6th 
12th century. We will first document this anthro, or I should say, ancient Near Eastern biblical tradition of trans Near Eastern and Mediterranean tradition. The divine body was thought to be so sublime it bordered on the non-body. Out of the distinguishing characteristics of this body divine, it is dangerously luminous and fiery nature. The body of the God shines with such an intense brilliance that no human eye can bear it. Its splendor is blinding. If the God chooses to be seen in all his majesty, only the tiniest bit of the splendor of God's size, stature, beauty, and radiance can be allowed to filter through. And this already enough to strike the specter with Thombo, A-M-E-O-S, stupefaction, to plunge him or her into a state of reverential fear. The awe-inspiring luminosity of the deity is in Akkadian terms Palhu Malamu and Kanadiyas mean fear and glory. This is A. Leo Oppenheim told us in a seminal article denotes a dazzling auroral or nimbus surrounding a divinity. This Pulhu or Puluhu or Pulutu is often described as a supernatural garment, fire and flame. The ancient and ubiquitous garment as body metaphor is certainly operative here. As Pulhu or Pulutu is equated with the Sumerian meat, body or corporeal shape. The Melamu is associated with some sort of sparkling headwear, like a crown or even a luminous mat. According to E. Cassie, the Melamu is better understood as the expression of a vital force in the form of pulsating life. Thus, Puhu Malamu, terrible epiphanonic glory of the God. Its radiance overwhelms enemies on the battlefield. The awe-inspiring splendor of Azur, my Lord, overwhelmed the men. The effluence of his surpassing glory consumes them. Even deities seek shelter from the radiant splendor of the greater God. 
to quote Oh my lady Inanu or Anuna the great god fluttering like the bats fly off before you to the cleft in the rock. They who dare not walk in your terrible glance, who dare not proceed before your terrible countenance. Theirs is a body invisible in its radiance, a face that cannot be seen directly. To catch a glimpse of a deity could mean death for a human onlooker because a mortal constitution is unable to bear it. In order to be seen, if desired or necessary, or in order to intervene directly in human affairs, the gods must conceal their divine form. Concealment is achieved either by veiling, enveloping their divine body in a mist, fog, or cloud to become invisible, or by some sort of divine metamorphosis. This latter is usually done by reducing the divine size and splendor and taking on the appearance of a mortal human. The gods of ancient Israel, too, was trans and his transcendence was morphic as well. Yahweh has a body clearly anthropomorphic, but too holy for human eyes. Yahweh's body was to believe to be incommensurate with mundane human existence. It has a different degree of being, human body. It is a transcendent anthropomorphism, not in the form, but in its effect, approachable only by the most holy, and absent in material form in the cult. The body of God was defined in Israelite culture as both like and unlike that of humans. No doubt the signature feature of this Israelite transcendent anthropomorphism is a brilliant luminosity that is the morphic manifestation of God's signature holiness. It is for this reason we are given to understand that humans cannot see God. Not because God is invisible, but because humans are unholy. And unholy beings are in great danger in the immediate presence of God's consuming morphic holiness. This divine body is also characterized by a divine substance antithetical to mortal flesh. In biblical canon, this luminous divine body 
has been called in some kabod. In the priestly material, in particular, Yahweh denotes Yahweh's radiant human form with the strongest possible emphasis on God as light. The fire that emanates from his kabod is dangerous. It consumes whatever it touches. Like the Pulhu Malamu of the Mesopotamian deities, the flames of Yahweh, the flames of God, the flames of his kabod unleashed on Yahweh's enemies to look upon Yahweh was deadly. The brightness was too much for the mortal eye to abide with Israel but not consume her. Yahweh, like the Homeric and the Hesodic deities, cloaked his fiery form, his body, with a black cloud. When Yahweh wants to visit wrath, one of his own, he thrusts aside the cloud, exposing them to his undimmed radiance. The God of Israel, like the deities of the ancient Near Eastern tradition, generally was a divine anthropos whose morphic transcendence imperils man. The best examples of transcendent anthropomorphism in the Bible is the inaugurable vision of Ezekiel. The priest prophet sees God seated on a glorious throne, quote, and seated above the likeness of a throne was something that seemed like a human form, upward, upward from what appeared like the lion. I saw something like the gleaming amber, thing that looked like fire enclosed all around, and downward from what looked like the loins, I saw something that looked like fire, and there was splendor all around like a bow in a cloud on a rainy day. Such was the appearance of the splendor all around. The, the likeness, the glory of Yahweh. 126-27 of the New Oxford Annotated Bible Translation. After this emotional description given by Ezekiel, loaded with qualifiers, indicating that the prophet was searching for the right words to describe the undescribable to the ground in a faint. Yahweh is here seen as an enthroned, transcendent anthropos. Ezekiel 1, 1 to 28. Ezekiel's vision of the deity is at once the most transcendent and most anthropomorphic of the entire Bible. 
as Raymond Cassier observed, and I quote, there is perhaps no other Bible prophet whose God is so corporeal as the God Ezekiel described. Anthropomorphism did not, of course, originate with Ezekiel. The Bible offers many anthropomorphic descriptions of the deity. The prophet Ezekiel belongs to this general biblical tradition and in fact amplifies it. On the other hand, Daniel. Daniel 1, Steel's vision of God is the height of divine transcendence as well. To quote, two features of the image are especially significant. First, Ezekiel recognized the form to be that of a human being, Adam, Adam, Adam. Second, this was no ordinary man to be his upper body radiated with the brilliance of amber. His lower body seemed enveloped in a dazzling fiery glow as well. With respect to the fourth and awesomeness, no theophany in the entire OT makes Ezekiel's inaugural vision. The vision proclaims the transcendent glory of God. Everything about the apparition proclaims this glory. The dazzling brilliance of the entire image, the gleaming of the characteristic bronze legs, the jewels on the wheel, the crystalline platform, the lapis lazuli throne, the amorous and fiery form of the man. Everything about the vision cries glory forms of the expression. Everything about the vision is in the superlative mode. God is alone above the platform, removed from all creatures and studying in his radiance. This biblical transcendent anthropomorphism had a long afterlife in post-biblical Jewish especially apocalyptic and mystical, esoteric Christian. And it will be argued Islamic tradition. The problem of anthropomorphism in Islamic historiography and argue not with the people of the book except by what is best save such of them as act just unjustly, but say, we believe in that which has been revealed to us and to you, and our God and your God is one, and to him we submit. It is our claim that Islam as a formulation of the ancient Near Eastern Semitic tradition, once possessed a similar 
tradition of transcendent anthropomorphism. Now, transcendent anthropomorphism presupposes, of course, anthropomorphism, and most Muslim scholars assure us that Islam does not countenance this. Nevertheless, the subject was hotly debated in early Islam. James Tavlin has argued that major theological controversies in Islam revolved around the nature of God and his attributes. And according to Richard C. Martin, the problem of anthropomorphism, quarrelism, lay at the heart of the dispute about God. In Islamic theology. The theological problem has always in some way been related to the scriptural representation of God. As Duncan Black MacDonald observed, and I quote, the Quranic descriptions are at first sight a strange combination of anthropomorphic and that a little ingenuity in one-sidedness as an absolutely anthropomorphic deity could be put together, or a practically pantheistic, or a coldly and aloof rationalistic deity. The Sunnah, as Daniel Jimaret noted, quote, Nise born pot of replande soup, encore relevant, vagrius, et abstrides du cran, elles amplite les précis les contestes. My enunciation and pronunciation of French is terrible. However, I do understand what it means. A Quranic hand becomes a palm with five fingers and fingertips in the Sunnah. How is this imagery to be understood? Literally or metaphorically? This question at times occupies certain stages in the theological debate. The real issue, of course, was the authority of Scripture. Studies treating Islamic anthropomorphism and the debates surrounding it are relatively few. Nor do Western scholars, I'll say that again, nor do Western scholars agree in the history of Islamic thought. Views range, for example, from the extreme of Helmut Ritter who claimed that for Muslim orthodoxy, the idea of an anthropomorphic deity was nothing less than Ein Grun. To the view of Ignaz Goldbeard, who claimed that his orthodoxy would accept nothing but a crude anthropomorphism. Scholarly ambivalence towards Islamic anthropomorphism is partly the problem of semantics, particularly much too imprecise use of the term anthropomorphism.
coupled with an uncritical conflation of this term and the Arabic tashbih. I'm going to stop right there because I need to give us now a more firm definition of what anthropomorphism means. And I don't want you to say, well, Brother Harold said, we don't go to the dictionary. Okay? The dictionary says of anthropomorphism, and I will quote it, by definition means having human characteristics. Anthropomorphism is the attribution of human traits, emotions, or intentions to what is deemed to be non-human entities. It is considered to be an, an, an innate of human psychology. That is what they're saying anthropomorphism is. So I'm going to give us for our purposes, a simpler definition that I think applies more particularly. An interpretation of what is not human or personal in terms of human humanization. Are human beings anthropomorphic? Human beings frequently attribute the anthropomorphic features, motivations, and behaviors to anything deical in its viewpoint. Thus, God, the anthropomorphic form of God, is human. A proto-human. That which is prototypical being first by which all other things are copied. Okay? So, let's continue. Something I already stated. This scholarly ambivalence towards Islamic anthropomorphism is particularly the problem of semantics. Particularly as much too imprecise use of the term anthropomorphism coupled with an uncritical conflation of this term and the Arabic tashbih. While the former term literally refers to man's form, morph, M-O-R-P-H-E, root word, morph, meaning form, it is more often then not, it is made to bear the burden of signifying all ascriptions of human likeness to God. Thus, human emotions, thoughts, and actions, properly anthropathism and anthropopathism are subsumed under the designation anthropomorphism. Because Homeric and anthropomorphism with its repugnant 
acting deity is usually the standard, and no consideration is given to the idea of an ethical anthropomorphic. Homeric being the Greeks, the Romans, and those people whose deities behaved in immoral ways, taking the form of animals to impregnate women and these kinds of silly things. That's Homeric. Homeric. So their repugnant acting deities have been from the standard of how to consider the anthropomorphic or a, a non-ethical anthropomorphism of God. However, it's given to the idea of an ethical anthropomorphism. The net effect of this assumption, if you will, is that discussion of an alleged form of God, a non-issue. Certainly, the scriptures could not have really meant to depict God as a disarmingly familiar figure who acts in ways that often seem improbable for a divinity, if not downright or outrightly inappropriate. But at least the biblical traditions of transcendent anthropomorphism articulated as it is in the context of an ethical monotheism should caution us with regards to this line of reason. It is, I believe, because of this uncritical and inappropriate conflation of anthropomorphism and Tashdia that an accurate account of Islam's theological struggle over the issues of God's attributes has yet to be written. Tashbis versus anthropomorphism. The verbal form shbuh means literally to liken. Thus, shbuh, similar to shabbat, likeness, remblance, and tashbis, assimilation, making a similar. This term is not used in the Quran except once in reference to the death of Jesus. Nevertheless, Muslim theologians of all eras and persuasions were unanimous in regarding Tashbir, that is to say, likening God to creation as condemnable. The problem is that in many cases, Tashbeth does not mean and should not be translated as anthropomorphism. Some of Islam's crudest anthropomorphists have been as adamant against Tashbeth as the anti-anthropomorphists. In fact, taking the history of Islamic discourse on the issue into consideration. It is desirable that scholars discontinue the ready translation of Tashbis by anthropomorphism. As such, a practice inhibits 
our understanding of the nuances involved in the discussion. For example, Ahmad G. Hanbal, the patron saint of traditionalists, and the Shabale or Sunni orthodoxy. We have elsewhere demonstrated that Ibn Hanbal quite unequivocally was an anthropomorphist in the strict sense. He was adamant that God's anthropoid to deny it is tantamount to kafur. Ibn Hanbal was, and if you will, a true blue anthropomorphist. Yet he disavowed tashbir in no uncertain terms. God's anthropomorphism is not like that of man. When asked about the statements of the Mushbiha or likeners, Ibn Hanbal is said to have replied, quote, He who says, hand like my hand, foot like my foot, he likens God to his creation. And this limits him. And this is evil speech, which I do not like. It is also reported that he was asked, is our Lord not similar to anything from his creation? And does one not compare him to anything from his creation? To which he replied, Kamishvillah. It is rather the radically anti-anthropomorphosis Jamihia, who are the true Mushbiha. In a telling remark, Ibn Hanbal accuses the Jahamiya of Hashbith for likening God to a man by denying that his speech was eternal. You have this assertion. To your belief, there was a time when he did not speak saw the sons of men who could not speak until he created speech for him. This is kafur and tashbir together. Far be it from Allah. We say the opposite. Allah was always the speaker when he wished. We do not maintain that he was without speech created. Nor do we say he was without knowledge until he created. Nor do we say that he was without power, light, or might until he created them for himself. Contrary to God's creatures, which had to wait for him to create their speech, God was never without disability. While both God and man speak with a real voice. God has his speech from eternity. Thus it is the Jahamiya who are guilty of Tashbir or likening God to his creation. The Mutazalite Abu Hassan Silat in his Kitab al Imista even later labeled Jamdi Safwan, the eponym founder of the Jahamiyyah, 
the Imam of the Mushabiyah. His thing was apparently that he likened God's knowledge of things to man by his claim that God knows something only after those things came into existence. There is no way one could translate Mushbiyah here as anthropomorphism. As Daniel Gimaret points out, and I'll do my French thing again, Ide Lezamia. Fondement leur anti-anthropomorphism. John could not tolerate the embodiment of his of God as his position of his contemporaries. None would accuse him of anthropomorphism. Assimilation may be anthropomorphism. Impossible. To highlight the point, the almost the term Tashkir is vague and nuanced enough as to preclude any translation as anthropomorphism. One could not only disavow Tashkir while affirming an anthropoid form of God, as with Ibn Hanbal, but one could also disavow the latter. And in light of this, how are we to understand Strassman's claim that Ahmad B. Hanbal has become the great orthodox authority against Tashkir? And Strassman's claim, Ibn Hanbal as an authority against assimilating God to man, which the Imam indeed seems to have been. Or as an authority believing God to have an anthropoid form. However, unlike that of man, the latter claim which seems to be Strassman's intent it is unintendable in light of our view of the sources testifying to Ibn Hanbal's creed. But it is in Henry Lau's article on Ibn Hanbal in the Encyclopedia of Islam where the dangers of an uncritical rendering of Tashbir is most clearly illustrated. Ibn Hanbal rejects the negative theology of the Jahamiyyah and their allegorizing exegesis of the Quran and the tradition is no less emphatically reject the anthropomorphism of the Mushabiha amongst whom he includes the Jahmiyyah as unconscious anthropomorphism. See here the inappropriateness of conflating Tashbir as anthropomorphism. Ibn Hanfal affirmed the latter, but rejected the former, and he accused the Jahmiyyah of the former, but not of the latter. This is not to say that Tashbir never has the meaning of anthropomorphism in the sources. It certainly does. But this has to be determined the likeness positive or prohibited. Absolute likeness versus the only relative likeness. Tati al-Din Ahmad ibn Tamiyah 
argues that the term Tashbir can denote a properly acknowledgeable degree of likeness between creator and created. And it can also denote an improper degree of similarity, dilute likeness, to disavowal is mandatory. This nuance is most clearly articulated by the Hanafi in his Shahar al Ida al Tawiyah. Ibn Abdiz begins by noting that the term Tashbir had become with people rather vague. There is an improper Tashbir prohibited by the Quran wherein an identity is posited between creator and created, and a proper or allowable tashbir, where only a general or limited correspondence is possible. Whoever denies the latter is guilty as he who affirms the former. It is clear that the creator and the created are singular in some respects, in others. And whoever denies what is common between them is a negator and is surely mistaken. On the other hand, whoever makes them homogenous is a mushbis and is equally mistaken. And Allah knows best. That is because even though they are called by the same name, they are not identical. Ibn Abi Ali demonstrates this correspondence by writing Quranic verses wherein man is called by the name of God. He argues that these are not mere homonyms such as which means both fire and the planet Jupiter. Similar in name only, the attributes of God and man share a common element denoted by the term. They differ in that those of God are attributes of perfection, wherein man comprises imperfection. As noted above, Tashbir is not used in Quran in reference to God. Instead, pivotal verse wherein God's otherness is most forcefully and would seem clearly articulated. Surah 42, Ayat 11. There is nothing like him. Uses a different root to be like, compare. Singular image, assimilation, likening to reject all anthropomorphism, but the same expression. There is nothing like him was used for anthropomorphic deities prior to Quranic revelation. It was found already in ancient Egyptian temple inscriptions of the Ptolemaic period. In this context, it's meant simply 
likewise, beckoning to Isaiah, theologically important dictum. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with me? Isaiah 40, 18 through 20 is not a rejection of anthropomorphism. Rather, it is meant to show the inferiority of man-made idols. And this is the specific sense of immovability and unshakability. Indeed, the very same formula is used to describe Yahweh's incomparability who is like? There is none like. Is similarly used to describe the incomparables of men and Israel. Who is like the wise man? Ecclesiastes 8.1 There is none like him. All. Among all other people. 1 Samuel 10.24 But Israel, the dictum of 2nd Isaiah, was not a rejection of anthropomorphism, but an affirmation of the paradox of transcendent anthropomorphism. As Robert Denton in The Knowledge of God in Ancient Israel puts it, quote, the particular paradox of belief and in all anthropomorphic beings is nevertheless utterly different from man is relative to their paradox and particularly to the familiar one which declares that God is both transcendent and imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. A paradox Israel was fully aware. She knew that God was both like man, yet entirely different from him. The context seems also to indicate that a denial of the anthropomorphism was not what the verses necessarily intended. And the blind and the seeing are not alike. The verbal root used here denotes equality, sameness, or to be equivalent. The man who can see presumably the truth of revelation is contrasted with the man who cannot. It is certainly not to be inferred that one of the men is embodied while the other is not. The difference, that which constitutes their unlikeness or otherness, lies in lies of likewise in the Quran, Surah 33, Ayat 32. O wise of the Prophet, you are not like any other women. The same Leshaka construction is used in the Quran. Surah 42, Ayat 11. Whether or not the difference lies in the other women's lower order of merit, as Goldscheiser thought, it is clear that there is no polemic here against anthropomorphism. According to Ibn Hanbal, Quran, Surah 42, Ayat 11, 
was from among the Mushabim, or ambiguous verses that required explanation. And a proper explanation does not preclude an anthropoid deity. It says, it was, says Ibn, Ibn Hanbal, Jam the Safwan, who first used the verse anti-anthropomorphic manner to support his novel doctrine of God as an, as an invisible spirit. On the other hand, a review of the exegetical history of this verse, Surah 42, Ayat 11, indicates that this verse was actually first employed by advocates of anthropomorphism in support of their position. In Ibn al-Jawazi's time, it was still in the service of anthropomorphism. Quite amazing. What is it about Lekish Kamitilsha that lent itself to the exegetical use of reputed anthropomorphism? Syntactically, the Ka could be read as a syndex relative cause added for emphasis, in which case the reading would be something like there really as a non-expletive. However, it would read, there is nothing like his likeness. As Ibn al-Jawi noted, taken literally, Zahir. This word indicates that God has a missile, which is like nothing and like which there is nothing. Ibn al-Jawazi cites this verse as one of the proof texts of the so-called anthropomorphism. Obviously, took the missile here anthropomorphism. But how so? The missile of Surah 42, Ayat 11, was probably understood in these circles as a reference to God's form. Surah which term is a synonym of missile, his missile, like Arabi claims, is Adam, the perfect man. Adam was made according to the Surah, was made according to the form of God. I'll say that again. Adam, Adham, was made according to the form or image of God. We say that one more, a third time. Adam was made according to the form or image of God, according to the prophetic and provable tradition. And he appeared to Muhammad in an Ashan Surah. According to other reports, God's Ashan Surah, his most beautiful form, was exegetical associated with Adam's Ashan Surah, according to which Adam was made. Adam's most beautiful stature and God's most beautiful form are therefore identical. 
at least in those circles low income. The exegete might even have solicited the aid of Surah Al Nal, Surah 16, Ayat 60. Easily be identified with his incomparable missile. Surah 42, Ayat 11 again. And then with his anthropoid Surah or form. We're coming up on the 8 o'clock hour and we're running out of time. But we're going to come back to this next week by Allah's permission as we begin to set the standard and tone for this exegetical body of God. To that end, I leave you with those most prophetic words of the late, great Adam Clayton Powell Jr. that noted black preacher of the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And I use that so much because when the prophet may the preaching blessings of Allah be upon him, when he went on the run, when his own people were trying to kill him, found refuge and safety, a safe haven, in Ethiopia. Abyssinia. The words of Adam Clayton Powell Jr. The former pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist York City was a safe haven in the words of Peter Faithful. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.